Hi, I'm Tristan Miller, and you're listening to Positive and Negative, a podcast about the intersectionality between mental health and the arts. Today on the program, I speak with actor and writer Isra El Salahi about her experience with anxiety, depression, and immigration. Here she is talking about the differences between the mental health systems in the United States and in Sweden. I think that in the United States, it is much more acceptable than Sweden. Oh. Yeah. I, yeah. I think it's, and it's about the same, it's equally difficult to get help too, I would say. Like in the US, hmm. most of the time, the issue of getting help or getting therapy is a financial one for most people, right? However, in Sweden, there isn't the financial aspect, but because it is sort of taboo and it is underfunded, there isn't a lot of help to get. Like there's not a lot of platforms by which you can get through to get help. Mm-hmm. So there the financial cost is an issue, but the availability is. And in the US, the availability is there, but the cost is an issue. This podcast is made possible by Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash Tristan J. Miller to receive early access to the rest of this season, along with other along with uncut versions of each interview, as well as a myriad of other pieces of media about and for mental health. All right, let's get to this interview. You're you're an actor. How'd you start doing that? I started uh, acting when I moved essentially to New York. I had a passion for it before, Mm. but it was a long journey of coming to the conclusion or like giving myself rather permission to do it. Uh, For a long time, I went to med school before I became an actor for a little while. I did all these other things that had nothing to do with my profession. But um, that's, you know, growing up in Sweden, you don't have actor role models. Like people aren't becoming stars in Sweden. There aren't, you don't have high school plays. There isn't a system that is. Really? No, you don't. It's not a part of the, you only get to do plays in high school if you specifically choose to take the artistic um like the, when, when you go to high school, you get to choose between three categories. One is social studies, one is science, and one is theater. So there's uh-huh. anything. It's music, theater. If you want to become an artist, that is the section you choose. Social studies, you'll end mm-hmm. up becoming a psychologist, a social worker, someone in that field. And then science is what I chose. And that's when you become either a doctor or a microbiologist or something in that realm. So unless mm-hmm. you choose that, theater specifically, you don't have theaters in high school you don't have like a school production play or something like that so it's it is really tough and I did one musical in Sweden was the only thing I ever did and then here Mm -hmm. and then I ended up um I actually got this like Fulbright scholarship when I was in Arizona at Northern Arizona University for a summer and everything Mm -hmm. about we were part of a program called environmental stewardship program and it was uh, all these kids from all over Europe and it was free and like they provided us with everything and we ended up going to the department of state and presenting these like environmental projects mine was like um the benefit the the not the benefit but the how the hoover dam affects the ecosystem below it because there's no sediment it's a whole boring thing but you know science world that's Mm -hmm. what i was back Mm -hmm. then um and that's where i started realizing that i need to really pursue something i love in my life how did you go about that change it was tough. I mean, I didn't know quite where to start. So the first thing I did was like, okay, I need to get to somewhere where I can audition and 
for this major work happening. And I always wanted to move to New York. I always wanted to. But I grew up with a family that was lower class, like did not have, could not financially support me. So I couldn't go to school mm-hmm. in New York um, right away. So what I ended up doing was I thought, well, what's the next best thing? London, right? And how can I get to London? Still find finances are an issue. So there was an English course happening at the University of Sussex, which is in Brighton. And Brighton is an hour away from London by train. So it's very close. Mm-hmm. And there was an exchange kind of thing happening between my university, Gothenburg University and Brighton, where you could study English at University of Sussex. And it would be as if you were studying it at Gothenburg University. So you didn't have to pay any tuition. Basically, the Swedish mm-hmm. government was paying your tuition. And so I moved and I got a job because at that point, uh, Sweden and England were both in the European Union, so you could work legally and you were fine. Um, and I worked at the theater as a friend of house. I worked as an usher, bartender, all the stuff at the Theater Royal Brighton, which was a great place to work, by the way. Um, and saved money that way and was able to pay my tuition, not my tuition, sorry, my rent and things like that. And so the plan was to audition that way, but I was very naive and I had zero experience, zero training. And I'm going up against these people who have like trained at RADA and like, you know, mm-hmm. and these places, like there is no way I'm getting an audition. I don't know what the fuck I'm thinking, you know, like I met Rowan yeah. Atkinson and Russell Brand at the theater. Like I had more, you know, runnings with celebs as an usher than I ever did as an artist there. Yeah. So that wasn't working out. And I loved the place. Um, I loved working in at Theodore Brighton. And there was this woman, Pauline, who had been working there for 35 years. And at one point, I just looked at her and I was like, I don't want to become Pauline. I don't want to stuck uh-huh. in something that is comfortable. And that is okay and nice for now. I need to make a change. I need to do something. And if I, if New York is the place I want to be, I have to get there somehow. But how? So I moved back home. And for two years, I worked four jobs a week. I was a clown. I worked at two call centers. I worked as a tutor in maths and biology and whatnot. And I worked for four years. And I basically saved up enough money where I could pay for my first year of tuition in one go. And then the rest was covered by loans by from the Swedish government and some to it, like, you know, just regular contributions. I also got a scholarship uh, for some of the money. So that way I kind of patched together so that I could have like the two first years in New York. And then after that, I just got my visa, my artist visa. Sorry, I got my OPT, which is optional practical training. And then I got my artist visa after. Um, And I've just been working in New York and kind of staying in the loop since then. Yeah. Okay. And I'm sorry, I I missed it. Where did you said you went to school in New York? Where did you train, right? Trained at Lee Strasberg Theater Film Institute for two years. I do their conservatory program. Yeah, Strasberg is um, method acting, like, right? It is. It's method acting. And it's method acting that specifies on these, you know, sensory and emotional memory exercises and all this stuff, which is a little, you know, I'll tell you about a memory that's been difficult for me there. So like the first semester, um, you get this exercise that's called like the morning breakfast, like beverage. And so you basically, you recreate whatever your morning beverage is. If it's tea, coffee, juice, whatever. You're supposed to Mm -hmm. feel like the weight of this invisible cup and you're supposed to be able to really taste it and really be able to smell it. And I I worked on this, but this is like how, how like psychotic it sometimes is where they will make you feel like if you can't fully smell this imaginary coffee, 
he must not be a great actor. Yeah. You're telling me that I, I'm not doing well because I can't smell something that's not there. <laughs> like it's like like what? And you know, and I get that those exercises work for some people, and that is totally yeah. great. But what the thing is, what there wasn't room of enough at Strasbourg. There's so much stuff I loved about it, and I had a teacher, Robert Elliman, who's by far the greatest acting teacher I've ever had. But there is this idea of a, our way is the only way. And when you mm. leave school, you come to quickly to realize that every person has their own method and their own way of doing things. And that there are many teachings and that you take kind of what you need from each teaching and use it. But this idea of like you either doing these exercises or you're not doing it right is what I don't agree with. Do you think at any point all the sense memory stuff was like emotionally damaging for me personally i will say like the only thing is that it is difficult to get out of sometimes like if you go into an emotional mm -hmm. memory and something that is uh difficult or potentially traumatic you feel that way the rest of the day like if you go into a difficult memory you end up mm -hmm. feeling i always felt really exhausted after each of the sense memory emotional memory classes because it takes a lot of energy out of you so that I felt and I and I did I would feel like a gloom and sort of like a mild depression for the rest of the days on those days that I did that. But damaging, I don't know if it's damaging. I think more so the attitude of like the institution was damaging more than anything. Yeah. There was also a lot of people who were totally faking it. I'm like convinced <laughs> were faking it. And they were just like, you know, like breaking down like set and shit. Yeah. And you're like Bitch, like, calm down, control yourself. I guess that you're in something, but this is also an environment in the school. And, like, stop putting it on. Like, I felt that there was a lot of putting it on, and I'm not the only one. Like, a lot of my friends yeah. who have graduated with have been, like, have said the same thing. So it feels a little bit like it's like that sometimes. How is the, was there a cultural shock, like, culture shock moving to the States at all? Was it difficult? <sighs> oh, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say it was difficult because what I've come to learn is that I'm a very resilient person and I can kind of adapt mm -hmm. to any environment. But I will say for someone who moved here from Sweden, where first of all, like in Sweden, no one's ever catcalled me. People don't get catcalled. There's not stuff like that. Um, you know, there's laws and things in order to protect you, like from housing, for example, like here in Gothenburg, where I live, uh, where I live now, I should say, um, all the apartments, more or less, a lot of the apartments that are for rent are owned by the government. So they're all rented out hmm. at a similar cost. You have like a landlord that is uh, uh, is hired by the government so that they take care of the apartments properly. Like you can get anything fixed. There's There's the standard of living is very different. Contrary, my first apartment in New York, uh, someone broke into the apartment at 4 a.m. in the morning when my roommate was up. This person stared at me for 10 minutes from the fire escape, but I had such a weird roommate that I thought it was my roommate who lived in the room that the fire escape was the closest to. So it never hit me that it was mm -hmm. like breaking guy that wanted to break in and, and ended up doing that. Um, I still lived in the apartment for six months after that. My roommate screamed so loud that this person ran up the fire escape. The handle broke for and for an entire month we had to enter our apartment 
through the fire escape. We had to leave and enter the apartment through the fire escape. No one ever fixed it. There was regulars <sighs> on the first floor, which I immediately made friends with because if shit goes down, I want to be on the side that is protected by them. Yeah. Um, on the first floor, you know, all this stuff happened. Uh, and I still like was okay. Like, so yeah. You started doing some writing too for backstage. How did that happen? That happened. Uh, oof, that's a funny story. So initially, I was seeing someone who was going to help me uh, get my backstage articles out. Like I'd written some stuff, and he had a connection with one of the writers there, one of the chief editors. But we broke up uh, before anything happened, or before we got to that point. And so mm -hmm. I refused. I refused to ever like take help from someone. I was like, I'm not, I am not a crawler. I do not go to people asking, you know, for help that I don't want to be helped by. Um, and so I was like, okay, I got to figure this out. And I knew this guy Tom Lapke, which I don't know if you know him, but he uh, he was one of the founders of Actors Launchpad. And okay. He also was for a long time. Uh, for a long time he worked at backstage and so i wrote these two mm -hmm. pieces i wrote a couple of really strong pieces i had them overlooked by my friends and then i reached out to him and i was like look i have these two articles i've looked at the market no one's written about what i've written about um and i think they would be really useful for backstage do you have any way of like do you still know anyone there and he ended up sending me the email to the chief editor there and I emailed her because I tried like the the normal route. Like I tried going to backstage customer service and calling and like doing stuff like that. And I got zero from it. And then when I contacted her directly, she read it and went back and was like, this is perfect. This is what we need right now. And, and that's how I got started. They published my right. second article the other day. And mm -hmm. um, every month I get like assignments and I get to sort of choose which ones I want to take on and all that sort of stuff. Has it been difficult to navigate trying to become an actor and being, you know, uh, an immigrant and also not white? <laughs> I would say that it yeah. is, that is like partly what I write for backstage is mostly I focus on yeah. international um, actor issues. And one of the, the rules are very different for, for international immigrant actors in America, not just in terms of, you know, being a person of color, et cetera, but also in terms of, just legally, like mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many agents and managers I've met who have loved my work, gone through my material, called me in for an interview, and then found out that I'm an art on an artist visa and been like, get back to me when you're on a green card. Or like, it's only a matter of time before mm -hmm. you hit big, but you have to have a green card first and all this stuff. And part of that is because there's a lot of networks that don't hire people who are on an artist visas. They want people who are in green cards. Um, why? There's many reasons why none of them really hold, but I think it's a security because if you're on an artist visa, it's much easier to cancel it. Um, it's mm -hmm. there's no guarantee that it will be renewed. And so like if you hit a series regular and it's a show that goes on for more than three years, there's insecurities in that. So that's like one thing. The other thing is like, for example, with Nora, I was uh, offered my actors equity membership through it. I ended up declining it because they have entirely different set of rules for people who are not citizens or immigrants, or sorry, citizens or green card holders. So for example, if you're not a citizen, you don't get to attend the EPAs, you don't get a physical card, um, and all your member benefits are frozen the minute that you're not under an equity contract. 
So essentially you're getting zero benefits, but you're paying the same amount of money that you would if you were yeah. a full member. And on top of that, you also have to pay like a fee to your, your membership gets frozen. So you have to unfreeze it every time you get an equity contract. And that is, um, I haven't double checked this fully, but I believe that it's a, a fee that you would have to pay then because you normally have to do if you're doing that. So I assume that you have to do it if mm. you're an immigrant. So there's lots of stuff like that that just sort of gets in your way and it's frustrating. And I've had um, voiceover auditions, or I've had um, voiceover auditions from Abrams artists and people like that sent, uh, agency has sent it to me for roles for major motion pictures, but they always preface it by you have to be a green card holder. So sometimes it's not as you don't even get as far as the audition so it's frustrating yeah does does that discourage you it sometimes does but i have a really my personality is very much of i'll give myself a day to be gloomy about it and mm -hmm. i have to pick myself up i don't let myself stay in it too much like even that I found so with the equity thing I found out six weeks into the production so I had been convinced that I was going to get my like everything was in an order and of course like being an actor getting your equity card is a big is a big point like it's yeah. a big milestone in your career as an artist and you know I cried I was really upset and the next day I went to my friend Brandon who was doing almost famous the musical at the time there and we were all all the artists were living in the same building and I went to him and he was like, we're gonna, I'm gonna submit you to my agency. And he's part of a big theater agency, or is mm -hmm. uh, one of their clients. And like, we put together a package, he went over my resume and I started sending in, that's like my, my, my mentality. Like when I get shut down by one organization or one place, I immediately go like, well, okay, so that didn't work. Now, what can I do? Like, where can I focus my energy? You'd mentioned earlier uh, that you are sort of an anxious person. Yes. When did that start manifesting? Probably when I was like 14, I would say. Yeah. 14, 13, I was pretty depressed around that age. Um, from, I would say, 14, 15 until like I was 19. Yesterday. Yeah, like essentially. <laughs> well, that's when I like my depression lifted quite a bit when I entered my 20s. But I mm. still struggle with it from time to time. And it always starts out as anxiety that kind of spirals and like becomes depression. Um, and my anxiety, like it's tough because we're in a, in a profession that is sort of gold for anxiety. Like there's so much yeah, that yeah, is yeah. out of your hands. There's always more you could be doing. And there isn't that reward of like, you put in X amount of time and work and you get this out of it. There's no guarantees. Yeah. So that's cause for a lot of anxiety. Why do you think it started happening? Was there anything in your life or do you think it just, you hit puberty and then you're like, oh, I'm scared. <laughs> that might be a part of it. I think there's also potentially like a genetic component in it too because my sister mm -hmm. suffers from the same thing and so does my mom. So I wonder if there was mm -hmm. a similar thing. Um, my parents both have always been very anxious, nervous people. So there's probably a part of it that is sort of like in the way I was raised as well, maybe potentially. I think it's just also the fact that I am really ambitious and I want to really achieve big things in my life. And from that, you know, because when you look at what I've achieved as someone who's had a lot of obstacles, what I've been able to achieve is quite great in that. But I compare myself so much to others and I put this pressure on me that no one else is really putting. It's just me. 
but I put it on myself and to be perfect, not only as an actor, but as a person, as all these other things. And, and so I don't know where it exactly started or what the reason for it was, but you know, it is what it is now. Is there a cultural difference between how the United States handles mental health and anxiety versus Sweden? I think that in the United States, it is much more acceptable than Sweden. Oh. Yeah. I, yeah. I think it's, and it's about the same, it's equally difficult to get help too, I would say. Like in the US, hmm. most of the time, the issue of getting help or getting therapy is a financial one for most people, right? However, in Sweden, there isn't the financial aspect, but because it is sort of taboo and it is underfunded, there isn't a lot of help to get. Like there's not a lot of platforms by which you can get through to get help. Mm -hmm. So there the financial cost is an issue, but the availability is. And in the US, the availability is there, but the cost is an issue. Now that you're back living in Sweden and even growing up, what did you, how did you circumvent the the stigma surrounding feeling that way like did you were you loud about it were you quiet no i was quiet about it for a really long time Mm -hmm. it wasn't until i came back from living in brighton for that year which was in 2012 that i started to like really seek help and really like deal with it in a more open way but before then i think a lot of people in Sweden and in general, there was this idea of like, if you're struggling with your mental health, then you're crazy or like, you're, mm. you know, that, that there's something abnormal, weird about it. And, you know, it's not treated the way it should be treated, which is a condition, just like anything else. You're chemically missing something or you need therapy or whatever, but it is a disease. And then that is like what it is. It doesn't reflect, shouldn't reflect negatively on you as a person. But I think that that was difficult. So for the longest time, I dealt with it the way I thought was best, which was, you know, going for long walks, like staying physically active, talking about it with my mom, my my family, like for sure. With my family, I was super open about how I was feeling and everything. And they were really supportive and helpful. But talking to a professional, I didn't do that for a very long time. Why did you start? talking to a professional well when i moved back from brighton i was particularly depressed Mm -hmm. because it felt like i had taken a step back you know i had these ambitions of of going to london and doing all this stuff and when i came back from from brighton and also i loved living in brighton i love my friends there and i love the the liveliness of that you know i stick out in sweden i'm not like everybody else i'm too quirky to be Mm -hmm. there there's all this stuff and so they're like, we don't understand you. We like everything to be, you know, just enough. Um, yeah. And uh, so, so like, I missed my eccentric friends. I missed all that stuff. And that, coupled with feeling like I was taking a step back, just became too much. Became too much. And I ended up not seeing a therapist, but I saw a counselor. I guess I don't know if I don't know what the mm-hmm. word for it is in, in English, but. Basically, yeah, she wasn't a therapist, but a counselor, and she was super helpful. And I will say, like, just after seeing her for a month or two, uh, I already, like, felt, like, the shift in my behavior and mood was beyond. And and it was just, like, that thing of being able to talk to a professional about your fears and them having be like, oh, everyone goes through that. Do you not know that? Yeah. Oh, no, I didn't know that. I thought I was, like, completely bonkers. And then, 
mm-hmm. things like that, like a lot of myth busting was made by her. Um, and then I didn't have therapy for the um, up until February this year because I moved to I moved to New York and I didn't have health insurance for the longest time. But then when I did that show, Nora, the theater paid for six months of my health insurance up front and like top. Mm-hmm. So I could go and see a therapist and I saw her up until, yeah, up until my ther- my um, insurance ended in end of June. So right now I don't have mm-hmm. anyone, but on Monday I'm going to, uh, I'm going to like the nearest hospital, I have an appointment and I'm going to talk to someone mm-hmm. who's going to hopefully help me get therapy here. How would you compare those two experiences of being in the United States and Sweden? Mm. I will say that it was really tough to find a therapist that was covered by my health insurance, first off. So it took a long time to actually find for equity. Yeah, because they had really they had yeah, I was um I was signed in with Cigna Health Insurance. That's the one that the equity um Mm-hmm. So I signed in with Cigna and they gave me a list of all these different doctors and therapists that were available. But a lot of them I called, I called five or six different hospitals and institutions and they all kept saying that they weren't, if they returned my calls or if I even got to the right person. Mm-hmm. But when I did, most of the time they said that they weren't actually covered by Cigna. So there was a lot of like incorrectness on that list. Yeah. And then one, finally one woman called up and was like, we don't take your health insurance, but I know this woman who does. And they gave me her number and I called her and she ended up being, she lived on the same block as me. So it took like one oh, minute wow. to get out of my apartment to go to my therapist's office. I will say great. she's a really great person, not the greatest therapist. Fair. Not at Fair. All. And I think the only reason I stuck it out with her was because the pandemic hit a month after we started seeing each other. Mm. When I was like, I'm going to struggle finding a new therapist and like doing all the stuff from abroad. And so I just continue going with her. Were there differences in the approach that you do you think were cultural rather than just personal to the counselor versus the therapist you saw? Mm, I don't know. I don't think so. I will say that the therapist okay. I had in Sweden was much more proactive and she was much more of like, well, this is this or like, have you thought with the therapist I had in America and partly, which is why I don't think I fully got the help I needed from her. And I don't know, again, cause this is my first like experience with a real therapist. I don't know exactly mm-hmm. what the roles are in, in America, but it felt like I was just talking for an hour every week and just get, not getting anything, like not anything like, yeah. you know, you should look into this or I enjoy a therapist who asks questions and who is like really engaged and we're trying to figure out together because talking, I can do that with anybody. I can talk the ear off of my mom or my dad or my friend for mm-hmm. an hour. Like I call my friends all the time about shit. I'm not a person who has a great filter or just too scared to share my emotions. I do that shit all the time. Mm-hmm. So I need someone who's a professional who can go like, that is a pattern that is probably significant of this and this, or like, this in your past probably led to this, you know, and I didn't get that with her. And so that was a little bit difficult, but I did get one or two gems. Like one of the most important things I learned from her was this, I had booked this commercial and I instantly started getting anxiety instead of being like, Hey, I just booked a commercial with a huge director and it's a good money. My mind was like, but I have a rehearsal on the day that they're supposed to do the costume dressing or costume 
editing yeah. and I have, um, you know, show fields work and shit and like, you know, get yeah, out yeah, of yeah. this and is it going to work? And they hadn't set any times for it, but I was still worrying about it. And she was just like, well, what do you want to do? Like, stop worrying about like disappointing your scene partner and disappointing your boss or whatever. What do you want to do? Mm -hmm. What are you happy about? I'm like, I'm happy I booked this fucking commercial. She's like, yeah, then don't like, don't be upset about whatever. Like, what do you want? It was such a simple thing. I'm mm -hmm. one of those people who's always like thinking about how my actions affect others. And for one moment, she was just like, what do you want to do? Forget about the rest. And of course, in the end, it worked out. Nothing ended up conflicting with what I already had. Like, just it happened so that the times were perfect. So, yeah, that is like one of the things I got from her. You mentioned when you're like coming to the States for the first time, do you think, but overall, do you think that living in New York and being an actor has like exasper exacerbated the anxiety that you already felt as a young person? For sure. Yeah. So when you were pursuing, like when you were in med school and doing science, were you, at, you weren't as anxious? Not as, but I was anxious still, like for exams most of the time, like my heart would palpitate before an exam and it's weird mm -hmm. because I didn't even really care about it. Like it was studying <laughs> something I, I was passionate about, but there is this mentality in me that like, no matter what I do, I have to do it well. And so mm -hmm. I was like super nervous about these exams. And when I was in high school, oh, Tristan, I would study like a maniac all the time. And I would go to a test and I would get so paralyzed by my anxiety that I, I would just forget everything. Like I would stare like yeah. at tears because I'd been studying for weeks, for hours, you know, like hyper-focused. Um, and then the anxiety would completely take over and I wouldn't be able to do anything. And so, yeah. Do you think those expectations come from yourself or from how you were raised? From myself. It's uh, self-imposed, the, the expectations rather than either culturally or from your folks. Um, I mean, not from my folks, but I definitely think that there is something in the mentality of immigrants in general, because my parents were, you know, immigrants to Sweden, mm -hmm. so I'm, I, you know, first generation Swedish. I think that there is something in the Im immigrant experience of like, anything can be taken away from you at any moment. You got to fight hard to like that and, and you have to fight hard to prove yourself as well. So part of it is like you have to be better, 10 times better than everyone else in order to just get the equal amount in a country. Right. Yeah. And, and that coupled with like anything can be taken away from you at any moment. So you have to be alert and working hard and fighting to carve out your position. So I think that's why there's like that, that is mentality that immigrants have and something that is imposed on us subconsciously sometimes just because of our surroundings. Mm -hmm. And how does your family feel about you stopping medical school and switching to the <laughs> arts? I think that they were uh, really nervous in the beginning. Like yeah. My parents have always been very supportive in terms of like, they want their kids to be happy. Um, but I will say that they were very, um, nervous when we decided to switch because my sister is also a fine arts student she's also a creative person oh. so for both of us they were like oh we don't know and then once they once they started seeing like how serious i was and that this wasn't like a phase or anything like that mm -hmm. which is what they thought in the beginning um they they loosened up on it but still till this day mm -hmm. i'll definitely get like 
the odd comment from my mom where she's like, well, you know, aren't you going to like start looking at some options? Or, mm-hmm. You know, I was watching this architecture program the other day called Extraordinary Homes on Netflix. And she was like, mm-hmm. maybe you should become an architect. I'm like, I already <laughs> have a profession and I'm working hard succeeding yeah. in it. I can't become an architect right now. Plus me just watching an architect program does not mean architect. Um, so yeah, you get the odd, odd comment like that. So your parents are from Iraq and being immigrants, like I, I would like you to talk more about the experience maybe that they've had and you've had um, as someone who emigrated from the Middle East. I think what people in the U.S. Uh, sometimes don't understand about Swedish, like, I feel like in a lot of time in Sweden, um, people are told that there is no racism and that Sweden is this very neutral country. It's not. Mm-hmm. And there is a huge, uh, for me, I'm, I'm very white passing in America, I would say, or like pretty much. But in Sweden, mm-hmm. nowhere, even though I am first generation Swedish. Like, I'll tell you the story about just uh, in March when I was coming back, sorry, in April when I was coming back to Sweden, I was on uh, Swedish Airlines. Um, it's a completely Swedish staff. Um, and this woman, I was sitting next to this guy. So this is a flight where it's impossible for there to be, not be a Swedish person on this plane because at this point they had closed the border. So only Swedish citizens were coming through. Like you couldn't be a tourist coming through. So that's strike number yeah. one. And this guy is sitting next to me and I'm there and this air hostess, air stewardess comes over and she keeps talking to me in English, responding mm-hmm. to her in Swedish. And she keeps continuing to speak to me in English. She mm-hmm. sees the way I look and just automatically assumes I'm, you know, foreign. And the guy next to me also hasn't said anything to her. Blonde, blue eyed guy immediately starts talking Swedish to him. And continues to talk in Swedish to him. And like at one point, even the guy looks at me like communicating with her and I start to get upset. Like I can like, I'm like, I don't want to say, hey, can you not hear that I'm speaking in Swedish? I'm Swedish. <laughs> but I keep responding to her in that sense. Yeah. It was so like ingrained in her that she couldn't even, like she couldn't even hear that the language that I was speaking was her language. That's so wild. It was so like, yeah. but that's such a small thing. I mean, in in yeah. other ways, for example, my mom, my mom and my dad, oh, so much shit that they've had to go, go through, so much discrimination in terms of their education, in terms of their work opportunities. I don't want to go into it too much because it's painful and there's a lot of it. But the one simple thing I will say is, like, for example, um, growing up, my mom, or my, in Sweden, my mom, a lot of the time would be approached, uh, you know, whenever someone when we were kids, whenever someone approached us and was like, oh, like cute kids or whatever, they would talk to my mom for a second and they would always go like, are their dads Swedish? Because my mom, uh, my mom was really into like her, Swedish wasn't great, but she was, she's a very intellectual person. She was very well educated. She was top of her class in Iraq, all that stuff. And it just kind of couldn't fathom that someone that is like an immigrant or kids said, because we were also very eloquent and very like well-spoken and things like that. And they couldn't famine that two kids that were from two immigrant parents, like they, they, they mm-hmm. assumed that one of the parents have to be Swedish because these kids speak 
like too well of Swedish, like they're too eloquent, they're, they're too knowledgeable about the language, so they must have like a Swedish parent somewhere. They can't be the product of two immigrants. And so there was a lot of that, like, you know, a lot of small stuff like that. I worked for a long time with uh, Swedish bureaucracy. So there's a lot of, sometimes a lot of immigrants get um, letters about different things that they can do to apply for grants and to apply for support from the government. But usually the language is so difficult and it's made purposely to be difficult that most people can't understand and they can't get the help that they deserve or need. And so for a long time, I worked with translating those documents for people on a volunteer basis. Mm-hmm. so that I could help immigrants in my community get the help they needed. It is also extremely segregated. My hometown is one of the most segregated cities in the world and in, in Gothenburg, in Sweden, because they like separate completely immigrant communities from uh, like native Swedish or like first generation Swedish communities. Um, and like in my neighborhood, you get placed as well. When you arrive, you get placed in communities. You're not, and it's really difficult to move. Like the way that you like I said earlier, um, all the apartments are owned by the government. All the rentable apartments are owned by government officials. And so you have to get into something that's called Bustadskön, which is like um, apartment. It's like the apartment line is like a weird translation for it. But you mm-hmm. sign up and then you wait for several years and your name pops up and you get an apartment. When you arrive in, in Sweden, you end up, everyone ends up in the same area, all the immigrants. So in my community, very few people spoke Swedish because they didn't need to, which is one already an issue because it stops people from assimilating to the country because they are not faced with Swedish the way they are, which then makes it harder for them to get work, etc. Um, but on top of that, if you want to move out of the neighborhood, move out of the community, you are discriminated against, and it's really difficult for you to get any apartment that is in a neighborhood that isn't that that community. Like to get into a white neighborhood is super difficult. It took my mom 30 years to get an apartment in a white neighborhood. Not that that was her goal, but she wanted to be closer to her job and all sorts of stuff. And so that took her 30 years. There's a lot of things like that. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And and how does that compare in the States, if you don't mind me asking? I mean, only comparing to New York. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I suppose. It's it's... a little more difficult. Um, Yeah. I mean, I will say like I've, because I'm white passing, a lot of shit gets said to my face, not that it's about me or like about mm-hmm. people. For a very short while, I uh, dated someone who, and, and like I went to their home, I went over um, for Thanksgiving one year and his family lived in Maryland on the border to Virginia okay yeah so (laughs) they were very much a conservative family he was not he was very uh uh, he was a democrat and all that sort of stuff but his family were the kind of republicans who didn't like trump but they were like give him a shot like this was when he was first elected right they're like let's see what the guy can do it was those sure sure and his um cousin one night like we went over to virginia um because his father's uh, side family was living there. So he went there and they he had a cousin and the cousin was cracking all these like racist jokes about Middle Eastern people, about like Orientals as he called them, etc. Yep. <laughs> and this, mind you, this dude is RH. Like he, there wasn't any, like, he yeah. wasn't like an old, 
you know, guy where you, not that it's ever excusable, but there wasn't any logical reason for him, you know, to be doing this. And I was just like fuming, staring at him the entire time. But it was mm-hmm. my first time at someone's family. Like, you know, like I didn't feel like I was in a position yeah. where I could defend myself or make any headway in that sense. So stuff like that has happened personally. But, you know, most of my friends are people of color and the way that I see them treated on a daily basis in New York City and in the world in America, it's tough. New York City, there's more diversity. So sometimes it's perhaps easier. But um, again, because I am so white passing in New York, I feel like I can't fully speak on like, in terms of for me, you know, I sure I've experienced it when I've been in other parts of America, but in New York, I feel very safe. Mm -hmm. And since you are white passing, is is that, has that ever proven not exactly difficult? Has it ever complicated the casting process that you've been a part of? You have people like on, I don't know where to put her. Yeah, for sure. I think sometimes it's like she's not white enough to be like the girl next door type or anything like that, Mm -hmm. you know? Sure. But she's also not dark enough to be a Middle Eastern character, which is bullshit Mm -hmm. because Middle Eastern people come in all shapes, sizes, and colors. But for some reason, Mm -hmm. like the, I can't tell you how many times uh, like East Indian actors are hired for what is essentially like a yep. Middle Eastern character, right? Um, yep. And and someone who is like truly like I am full Iraqi, like you know, will be passed mm-hmm. up for. But and that when it comes to that sort of stuff, I am still happy that someone who's a person of color gets a part of these. So those roles exist. I would just love it if people could expand their idea of what those what a Middle Eastern character is and what a Middle Eastern actor should look like. Um, mm-hmm. I'm very grateful for Rami. I think that that's helped in a certain sense because there you see, like Rami is an Egyptian comedian, Egyptian American comedian mm-hmm. actor, um, and a lot of the people that he hires are people that I know. I know um, two or three people on his cast: Uncle Nassim, like a bunch of people who are people in the community. Like the Middle Eastern theater community is very small, at least. Um, it's mm-hmm. easy to get to know people and. Um, yeah, so in that sense, that is like helping with visibility and showing that not all Middle Eastern people look a certain way or not all Middle Eastern characters are a certain way either, right? Um, when we were in San Diego doing Nora, the, the, it's about an Iraqi family. It's about a Christian Iraqi family. And the entire place centers around Christmas. So there's like a huge Christmas tree. They mentioned Christmas multiple times. There's all this stuff. But still, like when we had these audience Q&As after certain shows, um, we had this one guy one night who came in and was like, I was surprised to see them drink on stage. And we're like, How? Mm-hmm. well, because they're Muslim, right? And we're like, this is, the, mm, mm, there's a huge mm-hmm. Christmas tree on stage. We mentioned several times that we're Christian, that it's a Christmas, like, I just, I didn't understand, like, how someone could, again, it's like the airplane stewardess, like, it's, yeah, that thing of like just complete blindness to what is right mm-hmm. in front of you. So those sort of things uh, get annoying in casting. Yeah, does that ever like exacerbate like being 
the you know the depression because of I would imagine that it's you have a lot of um, not exactly conflicting, but like there's you have a lot of identities going on. You know, as, as someone who's Swedish and Iraqi and also an actor and also lives in the states, does that add to the the internal turmoil? For sure, I think that there is a little sense of being root, uh, rootless because I don't quite fit mm-hmm. into Sweden, and I also don't quite fit into here. You know. Um, Mm-hmm. I will say, though, I feel more at home in England and America than I have in Sweden, because I think that there's a, just a mentality that's more open to taking on people of different personalities. And I feel like there is, especially in New York, there is this culture of like a lot of people who come to New York, come to New York from other places. And, and mm-hmm. there is that sort of uh, community in a sense. But it is, um, it's difficult sometimes because, you know, I, since I am white passing here, it's tough because I've been treated such a different way in Sweden. And then all of a sudden you come here yeah. and you're not treated that way anymore. And then you're, you don't know like quite where you belong and like what community you belong anymore, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> How do you um, navigate being anxious and like preparing for working you know as an actor like how do you get your your mind out of that cycle it is super hard I don't know if I have the answer quite yet um I the things I do is I try to meditate recently I picked up meditating I try Mm -hmm. to do that if things get too difficult for an audition um I find that it really helps to actually go on walks and be out in nature and do physical things like it helps you know um, gives you endorphins and whatnot that helps you with your anxiety, things like that. And just finding um, sometimes certain mantras, some, certain sentences that work for me, where it's like, you know, avoid like one of the tendencies I have is catastrophizing things, taking something small and making it bigger. And I remind myself of the fact that I do that sometimes helps minimize that effect. But also, you know, what I, have been looking into and actually this coming Monday, I'm going in to uh, see if potentially I might start taking some sort of anxiety medication. Um, mm. That is, I don't know if I will yet, like have to get in Sweden, you have to get like evaluated by someone. You can't just go like, hey, I think I need medication. Like you go and give them a therapist mm. on sort of stuff. So that person will decide whether or not I need it. But I have, it has gotten to a point where like, I can't continue because I got a, I got an audition, for example, for um, a band's visit on Broadway. Mm-hmm. And it was a huge opportunity, obviously. And it got so bad that I, uh, my anxiety got so bad at the thought of like, of the potential booking this show and like how like, with things I would have to do to get to that point, and, like the stress of the pressure of this audition got to me that I actually said no to the audition. The, mm. And this was Tara Rubin casting, huge, Thing, right? mm-hmm. And they came back and they're like, no, we really want you to audition. So if you can't make it this Friday, we also have an appointment Monday. Can you come in then? And at that point, I was like, I can't say no. I feel like they're really trying. It would be, you know, just, but then for like the entire weekend, I was just like sweating bullets and super stressed out. And if I'm going to be a professional artist who's going to be confronted, hopefully one day with a lot of big auditions, then I need to I need to conquer my anxiety. Because it's not so much about talent and work ethic and all that sort of stuff. It's something else that is getting in my way and it's my confidence. And if I can put that aside, if I can put my anxiety aside, 
the things I could achieve, I mean, I'm achieving good things being a constantly anxious person. So if I can just get that monster out of the way, I'm sure there's lots more that I could achieve. What would your um, biggest piece of advice to someone who's trying to accomplish the same things as you and is facing similar obstacles be? I think if you can get help, don't try to do it on your own for so long, like I did. Mm. I mean, I tried to do it on my own since I was 14. And that wasn't very helpful. I think as soon as you can, try to get help. And that is a tough thing to say because sometimes people can't, you know, financially you just can't. But when you can, um, right now I feel like there's a lot of these apps popping up and these uh, things popping up where you can get like better help, I think is one of them. Um, not that we want to do plugs for corporations right now, but <laughs> there's there's places you can go where you can pay a smaller fee and get like help. And if that's important for you, then do that. Um, and reach out to people. Don't do it on your own. Like for the longest time, I've reached out to my friends and family and they've been really loving and supporting and in uh, helping me with that. So I think those are the things, like try to figure out what works for you, whether that's meditation, all these things that you can do. And um, in combination with getting professional help. All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you.